This evening's reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 26, and can be found on page 709 in the Pew Bibles. That's Isaiah 26 on page 709. We have a strong city. God makes salvation, its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. The path of the righteous is level. O upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the, in the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Through, though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. O Lord our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us. But your name alone do we honour. They are now dead, they live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. You punish them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation, O Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely whisper a prayer. As a woman with child and about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to people of the world. But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people. Enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. This is the word of the Lord. And let's pray, shall we? The Apostle Paul said this of the Old Testament. 
Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Father, please teach us now and spur us on to endure when life isn't easy and fix our hopes on the coming of Jesus, our Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, do you believe in heaven? And if you do, what difference does it make to you day to day? Many of us have uh, a view of heaven that is a bit like this, a bit like a get-out-of-jail monopoly free card. Or an insurance policy view of heaven. We've sort of... uh, Agreed with the idea, maybe feel like we've signed on the dotted line and we've got the card. Uh, We're going to be safe. Uh, In my uh, wallet I carry around one of those European E111 cards. Have you got one of those? It's the sort of uh, thing that you sort of have to have in your back pocket when you go uh, over onto the continent. Uh, It's sort of backup health insurance in case you get sick uh, on holiday. Uh, But usually I just forget it's there. It's just kind of there as a sort of backup uh, day-to-day I would use my debit card far more often. Well that's often how many of us treat heaven, uh, an insurance policy of little daily use but a nice comforting thing uh, in the background. Well the Christian hope, the hope in the Bible is not meant to be like that at all. We're told aren't we to fix our eyes on it. We're told to set our hearts and minds on things above, to look forward and speed the day of Jesus' return. And yet, so often, that's not how we relate to heaven. One of the reasons I think we don't fix our eyes there is that life here is so often plain sailing. At least for many of us, there's little major trouble. But of course, that's not the case for Christians all over the world friend of mine from university has very bravely gone to live in northern Iraq. He's been there for a few years now and of course he is very busy at this time helping uh, the many refugees. There are many Christians who've lost their homes, jobs, possessions rather than give up their faith uh, and they found themselves uh, in northern Iraq. Get regular letters from him, and it's quite grim the situation that they're facing. The thought of heaven for them must surely be not at all like just an insurance policy. What's enabled them to make those sacrifices? I'm sure that many of them are fixing their eyes on the heaven to come. And it must be, mustn't it, a source of immense, solid comfort every day to think about what is to come. Well, this future salvation uh, and future judgment of God's enemies is the theme of this section of the book of Isaiah. Let's just remind ourselves briefly uh, where Isaiah is in the Bible. Uh, This is taken from Vaughan Roberts's book, God's Big Picture, an overview of the Bible. Uh, It's a timeline uh, and the sort of the upside, I've forgotten whether that's X or Y, but that that one... um, It's kind of good if you're up and bad if you're down. So the story starts off well in the Garden of Eden. Then there's the fall, rebellion. And then God starts to put things to right by building the kingdom of Israel. But that wasn't a permanent solution. uh, And things start to go badly wrong. Uh, And Isaiah 
is around about this point. Uh, judgment is coming on Israel, uh, but there is this glorious hope, the prophetic hope, that God is going to bring uh, salvation. Of course, we see it coming with Christ. And finally, uh, the final judgment uh, and salvation. So Isaiah is here, uh, sort of 700 years before uh, Jesus. And here's a, a slide of, in fact, the book of Isaiah, just a sort of overview of the book. Uh, we're looking at the first half this term. Uh, and we are in the middle of this section here, uh, where we've seen God and his relationship to, the, to Judah, uh, their sin, uh, his judgment that they're facing, and yet there's hope. Uh, and then we see this big section where God is pronouncing judgment on all the various nations around. And we are now in the last section, the last few chapters of this section, uh, are where the focus really moves on to the end time. Uh, it's sometimes called Isaiah's Apocalypse. It's a little bit like the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible that we looked at last term. It looks forward uh, using poetic language often to describe God's judgment that's coming on the whole world and the salvation that is coming, the great and terrible day of the Lord. The details are there in terms of the judgment, but, but more than that, there is this repeated thrilling descriptions uh, of what it will be like, what heaven will be like for God's people, the salvation. And as this section concludes, there's lots of songs, lots of singing, celebrating rescue, celebrating God's victory. And chapter 26 is a song about this future victory. And it's a song that kind of tells us how to live now in the light of what is coming. And because the reality for God's people now is that life is hard, this song is really helpful. It was hard for Judah. Back then the kingdom was declining, judgment was coming. And it's hard now for Christians in many parts of the world. And it's likely to get harder for us in this country if things keep going the way they are. So this section is really, really relevant to us. How can we keep on living by faith now in troubled times? How can we keep going on the road to the new heaven and the new earth as believers now? Well, this song has got uh, three parts to it. Um, here are the sort of uh, headings for it. Trust in God, wait for God, and be assured by God. So first, trust in God. Throughout Isaiah, you've got this image of two cities, a tale of two cities, if you like. It keeps coming up again and again. There's the city of man, the human city, not so much a global village as we sometimes talk about, uh, but almost like a global mega city, a picture of a powerful city representing human strength, splendor and accomplishments, but also human rebellion against God. It's a city that's puffed up with pride. But verse 5 tells us that that human glory is going to be brought down and cast into the dust. And there's this extraordinary picture of the poor and the oppressed trampling on it one day. The poor and the oppressed is often a description of what God's people were like uh, in Old Testament times. Most of God's people were poor and oppressed. In fact, they're often called the poor of the Lord. And yet, wonderfully, one day, they will inherit the earth. And in that day, they and we will sing this victory song. Verse 1, 
in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Well, here's the other city. Not the human city, uh, but God's city, the city of God. It's not bricks and mortar uh, that keep it protected, but the saving power of God, a power far greater than any physical defence in this world. Here's a picture of uh, me and Sam. You're supposed to go, aww. We are standing behind the ramparts of this huge castle in Wales. Uh, and uh, it's immensely strong. Uh, It's been standing for sort of a thousand years, immensely strong. Well, God's salvation is pictured like this fortress-like city, uh, but its walls are far stronger uh, than any physical walls uh, in this world. Uh, Its walls are figuratively his salvation. It's that strong. Uh, It's an amazing salvation. But who goes into this city? Who are saved? Because verse 2 says, open the gates. To whom? That the righteous nation may enter. Well, who are the righteous nation? Well, they're described as the people that keep faith. Throughout the Bible, it's ever so clear that no one is righteous in their own nature. It's only by trusting God and his salvation that we can be declared righteous, we can be called right with God, only by faith. And what we have in chapter 26 is three different pictures of faith, what real faith is. And we see here, the first picture is that faith is trust in God. Trust is how you start out uh, in the Christian life. To become a Christian is to let go of trusting in our own merits or efforts, uh, and rather trusting in God. Uh, to save us. And these verses are a powerful reminder of how vital that is. Look at the promise of verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Wonderful picture. It talks of having a mind that is steadfast, trust that is uh, shown by a mind that is, in the old language, stayed uh, on God, fixed looking to him, leaning on him, resting on him. That's what faith is. Faith is never an abstract concept. Uh, Faith in the Bible has always got an object, something uh, that it's directed to, something that it's leaning on. So who are you leaning on? Or what are you leaning on in life? Is it him? Well, to be fixed on him, of course, uh, it doesn't mean that we have our thoughts always about him all the time. If they were always thinking about God, I guess we probably wouldn't be able to do our jobs. But that is where the general direction of the Christian's thoughts are, towards him. That's what a Christian is, a person who just keeps coming back to him. That's where our confidence lies. That's the underlying bedrock uh, of our lives. And it's a wonderful promise of peace uh, if our confidence is in God. I don't know about you, but that doesn't always characterise me. So often my thoughts and concerns uh, are about other things, like getting the next job or whatever other problems we might face. So often we lack peace because we're just sort of tossed back and forth by many other concerns. And we fail to have our thoughts focused on him. So this is a great promise for us, isn't it? 
He promises to keep us in peace if we steadfastly look to him. That's why taking time to read the Bible and to pray regularly is so helpful. It helps us to get our perspective uh, back in proper order and reorientate it around him uh, and reassure us of confidence in him. So that's the first way uh, of being uh, ready uh, for heaven. Trust in God. And verse 4, therefore, is likely like an exhortation. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. The rock is another way of, another brilliant description, favourite Bible description of God, solid as a rock eternal. Just think again of those things we often make our rock. Money, savings, homes, families, relationships. And yet all those things will fail in the end. The financial crisis has reminded us, hasn't it, of the insecurity of money. And death comes to us all in the end. So we are urged to trust in the Lord. How we need to hear it, because so often we are kind of, if you like, double-minded. We'll have one foot on the rock that is God, and yet one foot on the world. The letter of James in the New Testament describes this as being double-minded rather than single-minded. Not with the mind steadfastly trusting in God, uh, but rather someone who is unstable in all they do. In that great old Christian book, The Pilgrim's uh, Progress, I don't know if you've ever read it, uh, it's a bit old-fashioned, uh, but it is very remarkable and pays great dividends for, for having a look at it. In the book, uh, the, the hero of the book, aside from God, is Christian. He's called Christian. He lives in a place called the City of Destruction. It's the city of man from the book of Isaiah. But he hears the gospel and he flees the city before God's judgment comes on it. And he goes on the way to the celestial city, that is, God's city. And on the way, he meets many interesting characters, including a Mr. Facing Both Ways, an amazing little picture of a man who is stuck facing both cities, can't decide which way to go, in a quandary. And so often we can be like that, can't we? Neither this way nor that. But if we're going one day to enjoy being in the celestial city and singing the song uh, of praise with Isaiah, then the first key is we need to have that steadfast trust in God. But then second, uh, we need to wait for God. So we've got trust in God, wait for God. Verse 7 likens the life of faith to walking in God's ways, a bit like in the Pilgrim's Progress, from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And in our experience, it often does feel up and down, doesn't it? But verse 7, it's quite unusual, it speaks of the path of the righteous as level. He must be speaking, I think, with the eye of faith. One day, we'll be able to see it like that. We'll be able to look back over our lives and see that God was in charge he had everything covered. He so much got everything under his care that our paths can be said to be level before him, straight before him. He will clear the way for us if we trust him. And as we do that, verse 8, uh, as we walk that path, uh, we wait for him. What does it mean to wait for God? Well, in these verses, the middle section of this chapter, there are two aspects to this waiting. First, there is 
longing. Uh, my brother-in-law's just got engaged, uh, and uh, he's going to get married in July, uh, and uh, already listening to him talk uh, and plan, uh, you can sense the longing uh, for that day to arrive. Or think of when you were younger, uh, and you longed for Christmas uh, and those presents to arrive. Well, it's that kind of waiting that's in view here. Verse 8. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. Are amazing words. He's not just longing for a change of circumstances. Uh, many of us long to change our circumstances, don't we? Get a new job, move to a new town, find a new relationship, or find just a proper holiday. But none of these things will ultimately satisfy. Isaiah speaks of a yearning for God himself. Speaks of his name, his character, his renown. There's a yearning here, isn't there, for a fuller experience of him. Jesus said, didn't he, in John 17, verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what we are made for, to know him. And if we've begun to know him in this life, then we long for it fully. Well, that's the waiting. That's the first kind of waiting that's in view. It's worth noting that Isaiah longs for others to know God as well. Uh, he looks around and he sees a world that's blind to God. Look at verse 10. These people that he speaks of receive kindnesses from God and yet don't learn righteousness. And so often that's what we're like, isn't it? God has been so kind to us. In this country, we're free from oppression. Uh, we're genuine, gen generally rich. And yet we're so ungrateful and forget him. Even in a land of uprightness, they, do, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. And Isaiah says, actually in verse 9, it's only when God finally judges that all people will acknowledge him for who he is. And it's on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So to wait for God is to long for that day. Not that we wait eagerly for the condemnation of others, but we do long for God to be seen for who he is, for Jesus to come and reign and put everything to rights. All that is wrong in this world, all that falls short of what it should be, all that's twisted, everything will be put right. To wait for God is to wait for that. It's a longing for that. But also waiting for God involves dependence. I don't know if you saw that in the reading. Dependence. If I can't sort everything out for myself, then all I can do is wait for God uh, to sort it out. When the car is broken down by the roadside, I can't uh, deal with it myself. I'm dependent on the AA. All I can do is wait for the AA man to turn up. In fact, I'd be quite stupid uh, to try and uh, sort the car out myself. I don't know anything about cars. Uh, I'd if I got out the spanner, I'd probably electrocute myself. No, the sensible thing, the only thing I can do is wait for the AA. And it's like that with salvation. We can't sort it out ourselves. Verse 12 reminds us of our dependence on God. 
The peace that we may have, God establishes it. Even all the good things that Israel has done, in verse 12, God was doing it in and through them. And even through the hard times, look at verse 13 down to 15, it's a description of Israel's history. It wasn't plain sailing. There were many times when foreign powers, other lords ruled over them, Moabites, Midianites, Edomites. But by God's power, there was always a remnant that kept faith. And every one of those enemies died away in the end. It is interesting to ponder, isn't it, that how remarkable it is that the Jews have continued to exist over many thousands of years as a distinct people. I mean, how many Moabites have you met today? How many Edomites or Ammonites? Their memory has been wiped out. But God has preserved Israel. So waiting involves dependence on him. Verse 16 down to 18 is a, just another kind of example of that. It's a tale of Israel's failings. Israel failed. They sinned and God disciplined them in verse 16. And they so often needed that to keep going. But even when they were doing well, even when they strived to do good and help others, it didn't succeed. On our own, by human strength, it is not possible to save anyone from God's judgment. Look at verse 18. We were with child, we writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, we have not given birth to people of the world. It's a sort of tragic, comic image of Israel's failure in, in the labour of childbirth and yet giving birth to wind. It's like the blowing of a great raspberry, and yet it's humiliating, isn't it, at the same time? What does it teach us? Absolutely clear, isn't it? Salvation cannot be earned. God alone saves. So we must wait for him in dependence. And so, wonderfully, the end of the song brings us back to that future salvation. And it assures us that God has got a solution uh, in hand. God is going to deal with it. Here's the final point. Be assured by God. Be assured that the end is certain. He is going to deal with all the problems. Look at verse 19. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Paul famously said, if only for this life we hope, we are to be pitied more than all men. But all our waiting and hoping is not in vain. It wasn't in vain for all those faithful Old Testament believers who waited for the kingdom of heaven but didn't see it. Because Isaiah can see with his prophetic hope that God has given him a physical resurrection to come. There aren't that many mentions in the Old Testament of a physical resurrection, but here is one of them. It's absolutely clear, isn't it? New birth on the earth. A day when gloom will be gone. A day when death is swallowed up. Tears and disgrace wiped away, we will rise and shout for joy. Well, we've got more solid assurance of this, haven't we, than the people of Isaiah's day, because we have Jesus' own resurrection. The evidence that he rose from the dead means that we also will be raised on the last day. And so, 
we can be assured. We can see the end. We can see that God will sort it all out. But verse 20 and 21 remind us that when he does that, there is going to be a judgment. So it's quite a sober way to finish off this chapter. There will be punishment. All wrongs must be punished. The evil that is hidden will be disclosed. The wicked things that people have done and got away with, they will be revealed. And that's good news, isn't it, when you think about it? When you think about those people who've perpetrated abuse, sexual abuse, and then cheated justice by dying before they were caught, uh, well, that will be dealt with. Or think of those Nazis who took poison before facing, so they didn't have to face the Nuremberg trials. Well, they won't get away with it. All evil will be dealt with. But as we think of all evil being dealt with, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Because what about us? What about all our sins and our wrongs? Won't they also be exposed? Won't we have much to be ashamed of? I mean, Christians are no better than anyone else. We have the same sins and problems. But there's a promise here of refuge. Look at verse 20. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until his wrath has passed by. It's a picture a little bit like Noah in his ark, hiding in the ark uh, while God's judgment rages in the storm outside. But inside, God's people are safe. Or think of Passover night, the family huddled around uh, the table, Uh, eating the Passover lamb with the blood daubed on the door. Inside the house, they are safe while the angel of death passes over. While God's people will be kept safe eternally on the final judgment by the blood of another lamb, whom Isaiah has already started prophesying about and will speak about much more clearly in the chapters to come. For us, our refuge is the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us. And after a little while, God will have completed his work of judgment and eternal life will come. So we can be assured by God. He's got the end sorted. He will destroy evil. He will keep his people who are trusting in him. So, are we ready for the end? Are you ready for the end. This passage has told us how we can be, hasn't it? Uh, It's told us to trust in God now. It's told us to wait for God to come and to be assured by God. There are three aspects of real faith, three aspects of living faith. Trusting, therefore waiting, and being assured of the hope uh, that is to come. Sometimes life can be terribly traumatic but the promise is eternal life will dawn as we uh, look at one of these apocalyptic passages it's a bit like last term with revelation i kept thinking of the lord of the rings there's so many sort of analogies and just think of those battles like the one at helm's deep they had to endure for a time uh, a really hard time but they knew in the morning uh, that salvation was coming as the psalmist Uh, put it this is our situation weeping may remain for a night but rejoicing comes in the morning so trust wait be assured 
and keep faith with God. Let's pray. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Father, thank you so much that this passage teaches us and thank you that it gives us hope. Please, would we go this week encouraged by these scriptures with our trust firmly fixed on you and not on anything else so that we may know this hope. Pray that for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen.